everybody. Welcome to Salmorum Liber. That's Latin for studying the Psalms. And this is a series that I'm going to be going through in the book of Psalms, the whole book of Psalms. So starting in chapter one, and we'll go all the way through to chapter 150. And so these series of podcasts are available to you to listen to at your own leisure, to sit down and maybe use in your personal study time or reflection time or commuting time, whatever you would like. Hope you find them helpful, uh, useful, and uh, I hope that they help you not only grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in your experience and worship of him. Thanks very much. Take care. Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol. Who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And that is Psalm chapter six, I didn't read the introduction and it's a new introduction for us in the sense that it contains a, a word that references something that nobody really knows what it means. I I mean, they know what the transliteration of it is, but they, they're not quite sure what it actually means when it comes to the playing and the singing of this Psalm. So that, that word is Shemineth and the, the direct translation of it means an eighth. So they're not sure if it's like one eighth timing, like we would have in our worship services where it'd be like, you know, quarter time or, you know, uh, three quarters time or six eighths or six ninths. I can't remember what that weird one is, but this one here is, is in eights or, so it could mean one eighth timing. It could also mean that they were supposed to use instruments that had eight strings. So harps, lyres, um, any instrument that had eight strings, they could play it. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so when they say to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, they're talking about this instrument that may have eight strings or they're playing it at one eighth timing, or they could be playing it at an octave higher than they normally would. Okay. So octave is, uh, Latin for eight. And so it could mean any one of those things. Uh, we don't know. They would have known. We don't. Um, but, uh, it's, it's interesting because, um, here we, here we have this Psalm that, and we haven't seen this kind of Psalm before, but it it is an interesting psalm because it's it falls into what people have labeled the penitential psalms, penitential psalms. And what a penitential psalm is, is it's a psalm that confesses sin 
and asks God for mercy and forgiveness. So uh, an example of a penitential psalm would be Psalm 32, Psalm 38. Psalm 51 is probably one of the most common penitential psalms. There's only seven of them. Uh, In Psalm 130, that's another great well-known psalm that falls into that category. So if we turn to Psalm 130, I'll read it and then you'll, you'll see right away how it falls into this category of penitential Psalms. And so Psalm 130 says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord for with the Lord, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So you can see there, there's, there's this idea of repentance and praying for God, for his mercy and forgiveness. The unique thing about Psalm 6 is that there isn't a specific sin that's labeled here for us. And so some people have wrestled with the label of this being a penitential psalm. Some have called this a psalm of repentance. Some have called this a psalm of individual lament. Some have even called this a psalm of sickness or a psalm of grief. It doesn't really matter essentially what the title is. We still can dig into it and understand what David is writing. We do know that it's from David because it's, it's listed for us here that it's a Psalm of David. And uh, we would, we would um, be remiss if we didn't think that David was unaware of his sin. So he was, he was very keenly aware of his sin, both sins that, that he had committed intentionally and also knowing that he was a sinful person. Okay. Um, so it, it, it fits this idea of, of this being a penitential psalm. The interesting thing is that this psalm would be sung. So historically in church history, this psalm would be played and sung in church on the first day of Lent. So that, that was a thing a couple of weeks ago where you would have Shrove Thursday. Shrove Thursday was, you know, this big feast. Everyone would get together and have this big meal because they knew the next, that, that Friday, that was Lent. That was the beginning of Lent and everyone was supposed to fast on that day. And uh, if, you, if you look up Shrove Thursday, people would have pancakes till, you know, the cows came home. Um, so we actually celebrated that in our house for the first time ever. Thought that would be pretty cool. So we had pancake supper. It was great. Uh, we did not fast Friday though. So we didn't really follow through on that, but uh, we celebrated Shrove Thursday nonetheless. Um, so this Psalm would have been, uh, sung, recited, prayed on the first day of Lent. Okay. And if you're not familiar with Lent in in a nutshell, Lent is the period of time leading up to the Passover and it's 40 days. And historically the church would ask its, uh, members to give up something during that period of time that you would normally indulge in. So it could be a certain type of food. Uh, it could be a certain type of fun activity in this day and age, people are giving up some form of, of, uh, technology, uh, whether it's, you know, games or their phone or TV or Netflix or whatever that is. 
they're abstaining from that for the 40 days leading up to the Passover. And so, uh, the famous preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd Jones believes that this Psalm could have been labeled a Psalm about depression. And, and with that, with our cursory reading that we did, the first five, six verses, seven verses really displays that, that kind of situation for us where it just, it just, it's just bathed in this idea and this, this emotional feeling of, of David being depressed. Okay. Um, and not depressed for, um, any other reason other than he is depressed about his sin and his apparent uh, distance that he's feeling from God. So, like I said, there's no explicit sin here that's identified for us. Um, but the references of dealing with grief are just overwhelming. And so that's why people have come to this idea that this is a Psalm of lament or a penitential Psalm. Uh, some people have, have, uh, broken this psalm into two parts. So verses one to seven and then eight to 10. Uh, I've broken it down into four parts, uh, verses one to three, four and five, six and seven, and then eight, nine, 10. So you would have a three verses, two verses, two verses, three verses. Um, seems natural to be break, broken down that way. Um, I'm not the only one that's done that. A lot of people have as well. Um, and you'll notice that at the beginning of the psalm, David starts out with the, the very real uh, acknowledgement of God's anger. And he says here, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And so again, we come to this phrase, O Lord, that's the Lord is the word Jehovah. And it's translated for us literally meaning, oh, existing one. And the understanding with that is when somebody says, oh, Jehovah, meaning, oh, existing one, it's the, it's the existing God who hears, who has compassion, who acts. Okay, there's, there's an expectation behind the name of God, of Jehovah, that he not only hears and listens, but he acts. Okay. And you'll see that David uses that title, O Lord, all the way through the psalm. Okay. Uh, it starts in verse one. He does it in verse two. Uh, it's in verse three and then verse four. And then you see the word Lord come up in verse eight, nine, uh, twice in, the ver in verse nine. Okay. And so there's this deep expectation that God doesn't only hear, but he will act. Okay. Um, and when, when he makes reference to this idea of rebuke, that is really uh, an, a, a synonym for that would be, oh, Lord, don't judge me in your anger. And so this would lead us into that, that label of this being a penitential psalm, because if David is saying, don't judge me in your anger, well, why would God judge David in his anger? Well, quite simply, because David has sinned. And so David is in, in a confessional prayer right now, and he's asking God not to judge him in his anger. So he says, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Um, in essence, he's, he's super overwhelmed by what is happening. Okay. Super overwhelmed by what is happening. And the idea of discipline, this, 
this this word discipline carries with it the idea of uh, his heart being reined like a like a horse, being controlled by a horse. And what he's saying is is that don't discipline me in your wrath, meaning don't don't steer me into your wrath. Okay, because we would we would understand that a rein goes around a horse's head, and it helps us control the horse. And what he's saying here is he's not saying don't don't control me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is don't steer me into your wrath. And then he goes on to say, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. And so he quickly turns from the couple attributes of God that we tend not to hear too much about in that God has anger and he has wrath towards sin. And then he turns to his graciousness and he says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. That word gracious could also be translated, pardon me, show mercy to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. And that word languishing, if you have a different translation, it could be uh, translated weak or I am frail. Okay. And the idea here is, is that this could very well be a physical description of David and what he's going through. Okay. Um, it's not necessarily hyperbole and you'll see the hyperbole down in later in uh, verses six and seven, where I, I think it would be nearly impossible to drench a couch with tears. Okay. But it's a very real hyperbole. Like he's, he, he's cried that much that he would say, Hey, you know, I've cried so much. My couch is soaking wet. Okay. Um, and he's saying his eyes have wasted away because of grief. Well, we would un- understand that to mean that he's just, he's just cried that much that his eyes are swollen and he probably can barely see out of them. Okay. That was the depth of emotion that he's going through. So when he says, I am, tr- I am languishing, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. That, that phrase, heal me really, really could be uh, translated, restore me to your favor. So be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Restore me to your favor, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. And that's an interesting phrase. Okay. When, when he says, my bones are troubled, we see this kind of metaphor come up again. Uh, in the New Testament, um, if we turn to John chapter 12, starting in verse 27, Jesus says, now my soul, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So it's interesting that Jesus says, my soul is troubled. If we go to uh, chapter 13, verse 21, gives us a little bit more of of a picture of what Jesus means when he says, my soul is troubled. In chapter 13, verse 21, he's, it's written there for us. After saying these things, meaning after he's talked to his disciples about washing their feet and being clean, he says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, if one of, one of you will betray me. So he's, 
he's he's saying now not just am, not just am I troubled, not just is my soul troubled, but my spirit is troubled. So he's talking about this idea of being vexed really deep inside of his person. And so the the word picture that's used to describe what Jesus is talking about as well as what David is talking about. And remember in the Old Testament here in the Psalms, it's it's the Hebrew language and in John it's written in Greek, but they have the same meaning, the words. And the word really talks about how someone would agitate a big pool of water. Okay. Uh, and, and create all these, all these turbulences on the top of the water. Okay. Um, and it's meant to describe the way somebody feels in their mind and in their inner being that it's just, it's choppy. It's uneven. It's not calm. Um, it's there's, there's very little composure left. Okay. Especially when someone's in a difficult situation, that's, that's the meaning behind this idea of David saying, I am, I am troubled. My bones are troubled. In fact, one person said, it's interesting that David said my bones are troubled because when he is referring to his bones, we know that the skeleton of a human being is the foundation and everything hangs on. And we know that the skeleton is what keeps us uh, together essentially. And David is saying my inner frame is troubled, is shaking because of what I'm going through. Okay. Um, and yet there's a difference here between Jesus and David. David is saying, heal me, take this away from me. But Jesus didn't pray that. In fact, we, we know later on in the garden, he said to God, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Okay. And so there's a big difference there where David, David doesn't want to keep going through this and Jesus is embracing it, knowing why it's there. Then in verse three, we see David saying even deeper, my soul is also greatly troubled. So it's not just not just am I shaking on the inside, being so nervous and anxious. My soul, my inner being is greatly troubled. So more troubled than even my bones are feeling right now. So I think you can get a sense of, of the, the emotional situation that David is in right now. And, and the intensity of his prayer. And so his repeating of the verb meaning troubled is a clue for us in the Hebrew language that it, we're ramping up the effect of the experience. And then verse three ends in a kind of a, a, a weird way. There's, there's, there's nothing missing there that that's, that's how it's written, but you, O Lord. And it's almost like there's a pause. And then David says, how long? And what he's saying here is my soul is troubled. My bones are troubled, but you O Lord. And it's almost like he just stops and he, and he asks this very deep personal kind of, kind of just this intense question. How long he uses the same language, David, in another Psalm. If you turn to Psalm 13, this is a Psalm of lament. David starts off the Psalm by saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So for half of the psalm, he uses that same question. How long do I have to wait? How long is this going to go on for? How long do I have to sit here in this situation before you act? And it's interesting that, that David doesn't blame God. You see, you see that in his prayers? He's not blaming God for the situation. In fact, he's, he's, he's pleading to God to show him mercy. And so David is really, is really showing us in a certain way that, that he is totally in submission to the sovereignty of God. Because he's not blaming God. He's just asking, how long do I have to be in this situation? And he's praying for mercy and forgiveness. And you'll notice that he's asking God to remove his rebuke and his discipline. Right? So it makes us think that when, when David sinned, there was consequences. We know that. So when he took Bathsheba and they committed adultery, the consequence was very severe. She got pregnant. She gave birth to a, a boy. But that, that, that baby died. And the baby died as a consequence of his sin. And we know that, that David cried and wept uh, for a period of time. And then when the, when the baby uh, passed away, David got up. He, he bathed himself, put oil in his hair, and, and went to the temple and, and worshipped. And, and accepted that consequence for his sin. And so um, you can see here that in his prayer to God, he's asking God not only to remove the rebuke and to remove the discipline, but he's asking, how long is this going to go on for? How long is this going to go on for? And so in verse four, we see David saying to, to God, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And so when David says turn, it's not just, you know, turn around. He's saying, come back to me. So even that phrase that David prays, turn, O Lord, he's essentially saying, come back to me, O Lord. So David is feeling a separation in his relationship with God because of his sin. And he goes on to say, deliver my life. Essentially restore it to what it was before. Before he, before he sinned and before he became conscious of the sin and, and before he started confessing his sin, he's asking God to turn back to him, to come back to him and restore the relationship that he and the Lord have. And then he calls on the Lord in the promise that the Lord gives him. And it's not really clear for us in black and white, but this is what it means. When he says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. 
what he's saying here is based on your covenant and your promise to me, save me for the sake of your name. Save me for the sake of your character. And that, and that, and that in and of itself too is a really interesting teaching point for us in our own prayers that when we're praying to God and we're in anguish about what we're praying to him about, and we may be praying to God about our, our sin and confessing our sin to him and asking God to come back to us and restore us back to that relationship. David doesn't say, restore me to the relationship because I'm the King of Israel. And I, I need to be in this, this relationship with you to model all this for you. He's keeping his focus on God and he's saying, do all these things, Lord, as I pray them for your reputation, for the sake of your name, for your witness, to demonstrate your power. And that's an interesting teaching point for us because sometimes we get that mess mixed up where we ask God to pray. We ask God to save us, to deliver us one, because we don't want to be in the situation anymore, which is not out of line with what David's saying here. But sometimes where we get messed up in it is we ask God to do things for our benefit rather than for his. Because David David goes on to say in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And so I want to take a few moments to talk about the idea of in death there's no remembrance of you. And in in Sheol, who will give you praise? So to cut to the chase in the first section of verse five, when David says, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. What he's saying is he's saying essentially that when somebody dies, there's no more opportunity in their life on this earth to give God praise and glory. So if Tim dies today, Tim will not be able to give praise and honor to God on earth tomorrow. That, that's gone. That opportunity is not there anymore. He's not saying that there's an annihilation that happens to the person's soul. He's not saying that once a person dies, that they cease to exist. That's not what he's saying. And when he says, in Sheol, who will give you praise? We kind of have to get a bit of an understanding about what Sheol is and a little bit of the understanding in the Old Testament about Sheol itself. Now, Sheol could be translated hell. It's more, it's more appropriate to translate it as a pit or a cavern, uh, a place of no return, okay? a deep, dark cavern. That's, that's, the, that's the metaphor that comes with it. It was essentially a place of no return in the Old Testament perspective. Now, remember, there, there, wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot written specifically about heaven and hell in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that becomes very clear. Jesus himself talks about heaven and hell and the, and the difference between them. And then uh, throughout the letters, the, the results of the gospel talk about that. And then in Revelation, it's even more clear. But in the Old Testament, the idea of heaven and hell isn't really fleshed out for us like it is in the New. In the Old Testament, there was the idea that when you died, you would go with God, 
or you would go to Sheol, which was, for a lack of better term, this 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 Netherland where the souls would go and wait. Okay, and you can see that out of that very basic description, how Roman Catholicism began to develop the idea of purgatory, where souls would go and wait for the final judgment, and then all these other heresies spun off of that. But in the in the Old Testament, Sheol was this place where where souls who were not who did not belong to God were to go and wait and wait for their final judgment. And it's not soul sleep, okay, as some would think. Like the soul is still awake, the soul is still aware. And so when David says, Who's going to give you praise from there? There's no praise coming from that place. Because what's going on in Sheol is the is the the full-on judgment of God. And and we have to understand that in that full-on judgment of God, no one is giving praise to him in that place for that judgment. In fact, in the New Testament, when hell is described for us, it's often described with the, with the uh, moniker, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not described as a place where people go and give praise to God for his discipline, his judgment, and his wrath upon them in that place. Okay. And so when David writes for in death, there is no remembrance of you. Essentially what he's saying is that when people die, they give the, they cease to have the opportunity to give praise to you. And then in Sheol, they're not going to give praise to you even there because they're under your divine wrath and judgment there and awaiting the second judgment. Now there's some, there's some scripture verses that uh, I want you to write down and you can look these up a little bit later and, and, and do your own little word study on this. In Ezekiel chapter 32, starting in chapter, uh, sorry, starting in verse 18, chapter 32, 18 of Ezekiel, you'll see some, some descriptions of Sheol. Same thing in Job chapter 10, verse 22, it's described as a wasteland. And then in Psalm 88, Sheol is, is a place where men, um, men meaning the generic term for, for humans, it's a place where humans are cut off from, the, from the, the presence of God, the grace of God, the love of God. Okay. And then in the, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, this place is described as a stronghold. And again, the idea of being cut off from God's favor is found again in John chapter 9, verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27.